Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. The Devil Fears Prayer. Just imagine this scene. The devil sits in the back of the room during a strategy session. A dozen demons have gathered to hear a report on the life of an especially committed saint. Ah, he won't stumble, grouse the imp responsible for his demise. No matter what I do, he won't turn his back on God. The council began to offer suggestions. Take his purity, one said. I tried, replied the fiend, but he's too moral. Take his health, urged another. I did, but he refused to grumble or complain. Take his belongings. Are you kidding? I've stripped the man of every penny and possessions, yet he still rejoices. For a few moments, no one spoke. And finally, from the back of the room came the low-measured voice of Satan himself. The entire council turned as the fallen angel rose to his feet. His pale face was all but hidden by the hood. A long cape covered his body. He raised his bony hand and made his point. You must take what matters most. What is that? asked the subordinate. You must take his prayer. Don't allow Satan to take your prayer. Now in the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Leonard Blair offers us the keys to a better prayer life. How to get closer to God, stronger against evil, and healthier in life through prayer. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for taking some time to spend with us in the Archbishop's Corner where prayer becomes the goal for every Christian life. How are you today on this fifth Sunday of Lent? Very well, thank you. As of this past Friday, our church capacity is back up technically to 100%, but we have to maintain six-foot distancing and still wear masks. Do you see parishes opening up to that extent? Well, I can only tell you that I've uh, encouraged the pastors to uh, certainly make use of these new possibilities, provided, of course, that they can observe all the safety precautions that are necessary. And uh, I think because my impression and my visiting parishes myself, my impression is that our priests and people have been very good about following what was asked of them, that I think as long as they continue to be conscientious that way, we can start to ease up in accordance with what is permitted. And hopefully things will continue to get better, not just for mass attendance, but for everything. However, your dispensation from mass attendance still continues, does it not? Yes, yes, it does. And we'll be looking at that again uh, at when the time comes. And I believe that lasts until Pentecost Sunday, is that correct? Yes. Today uh, is the start of what's called Consider Christianity Week. It's an annual event that is held two Sundays before Easter, and its purpose is to encourage Christians to examine the evidence and reasons for their faith and for non-Christians to take another look at the faith that has played such an important role in shaping the history and culture in which we live. As culture becomes increasingly secular, the difficulties encountered in effectively communicating the gospel message increase. Now, today, it can no longer be assumed that people are familiar with the Bible, much less believe it to be the Word of God. So my question to you is, how can we effectively communicate Christianity and Christian principles in our secular society today? Well, a couple observations about what you said. One is, I don't think it's just that it's become secular. I think it, in many cases it's even become hostile uh -huh. um, to Christianity and to faith. 
or let's put it this way, it's increasingly hostile. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that most people are that way, but let's put it this way, as long as uh, what uh, our faith believes and teaches remains kind of benign, then it might be more indifference. But to the extent that it starts to contradict where society wants to go, then uh, the reaction very, very often becomes hostile. And uh, so there's a price to be paid by people of faith if they're going to hold to what they're what the church believes and teaches in many spheres of life. It was interesting, you asked about, you know, this whole question, and I'm thinking of something I read uh, just uh, uh, today, uh, a book review about an author who uh, tries to um, unravel for us uh, what has become of scripture uh, over the last uh, century, century and a half, and how critical historical studies of scripture, which in itself is not uh, at all bad, but it is led to all kinds of uh, theories, sometimes very convoluted and contradictory of one another in certain respects, that uh, has led many people to believe that what is found in Scripture is really kind of uh, not not an eyewitness uh, account, not even a historical, not even having a historicity to it, but being kind of a contrived uh, a thing that, that uh, an interpretation and et cetera, et cetera, that can be d- disputed and debated. And of course, we see this on many issues where people say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. In the culture of his times, he meant something else, or that the, the church said this, but you get the idea. So uh, I say, when you talk about secularization and, and all this, we have to have a, a fundamental conviction that Christ is who he proclaimed himself to be, and that, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the church has faithfully handed down, beginning with the New Testament itself, has faithfully handed down the truth about Christ and about his teaching and all that flows from that for, for, for our life and for the life of the world. So it's really a very difficult thing. I remember reading a book about how this started in the 19th century, that as scholarship and secular studies began to look at the historical layers of scripture and started to, in a sense, in some cases, discredit what was there or or call it into question, that people began to have less faith in the authority of the, and the teaching of the Bible. Of course, the teaching of the, of the scriptures and the church are, are inseparably bound together. Yeah, it's a huge challenge uh, for people. And you know, as Catholics, we're not some mindless people who believe myths or accept scripture uh, in a fundamentalistic way. We acknowledge the historical context of scripture, but I quite honestly, that that's that kind of study has never really discredited. Uh, I mean, it does for some because they take it to, to, in different directions or at different depths. But the, you know, fundamentally, nothing has discredited the truth of what we believe. It occurs to me that as you were talking about scripture and unraveling scripture today, in this cancel culture where we've seen so many books uh, from past times be put on the cancel list, if you would, and discredited. I'm wondering if the Bible itself is going to be, in certain aspects, canceled. Well, it's not never going to be canceled because it's God's word, but I know what you mean. In other words, uh, you know, is Amazon going to say that they won't sell the Bible because of the things that are written in sure, there yeah. about uh, sexual mores or about other things? And you're absolutely right, because uh, if, you, if you look at, uh, you know, what the, what the scriptures say about a lot of things, instead of appreciating the whole context and and the historical evolution of of uh, of teaching and and moral truth as uh, in contrast to the fundamentals of moral truth that are there 
you know, it becomes problematic for a lot of people. Just, just read the first chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, and you'll see what I mean. Tomorrow is uh, what's called National Goof-Off Day. And we've all been well. Told, we've had quite a plunge, haven't we? Here from well, perhaps high, we, we need to lighten high, this lighten this up a little bit. And oh well, you certainly are succeeding. We uh, we've all been told to take a break, do something fun, to forget our worries for a while. We've got so many worries that so many people are are concerned about. This day is observed each year as a time to relax, enjoy, and goof off. Sometimes we tend to take things too seriously and forget to enjoy life. When given the chance. Archbishop, what do you do to rest and, and relax, besides watching Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune? Well, that's a COVID kind of routine that I'm yeah. in right now yeah. for the evening when I don't have something else to do. But I must, well, I must say that the, the, the main thing, uh, it's not any one distraction. It's simply to step away from uh, your responsibilities and your work for and, and not let that take over your day and to spend some time relaxing and, you know, just getting a, a, out a little bit. Uh, and uh, doing some reading or walking or something like that. It's good to take a step back for all of us during the course of the day, and it helps put the rest of the day into perspective, the more serious parts of our day. On Thursday, we celebrate the Solemnity of the Annunciation of the Lord, and this day celebrates the visit of the Archangel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary to announce to her the special mission that God had chosen for her in being the mother of his only son. This is the height of God's communication to humanity an angel sent to bring good news. How effective is the Church today, Archbishop, in bringing this good news to life, as the motto of the Office of Radio and Television suggests? Well, and you I might think... talk about you might talk about the challenges that, that we face today, too, in communicating that message. Well, I think uh, our Lord himself uh, gives the apostles uh, directions that strike us today as uh, somewhat simplistic or impractical in the current context so that we take them in a more symbolic way. And that's not bad, but, you know, Jesus sent them out two by two. He said, if somebody will not receive you, shake the dust off your feet and go to another place. He said, carry neither, you know, walking stack, uh, staff or uh, two tunics or all these things, you know, uh, with the idea of the urgency of this message to the world. And it really is repent and believe in the gospel. That That's the message. So in a very complex uh, world in which Christianity is established and historically known, uh, that takes on a different significance, but the basic is still there, that our job is to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ of the gospel, in season and out of season, as St. Paul says. Whether people like to hear it or they don't, that's not to say that we don't try to appeal uh, to them to believe and not just, you know, try to uh, condemn them or something, but we, we make this appeal to you, St. Paul says. And so that's the appeal we have to make out of charity. Uh, and then we have to let the chips fall where they may. We can't force people and we can't make a decision for them about what they will believe or not believe. And we do it out of love and we pray for them. And we have to be strong in faith ourselves. But that's always the, the message of the gospel. And when you say be strong in faith ourselves, that means model what it means to be a good Christian, does it not? Certainly. that we're, You can't be a hypocrite or you can't say one thing and do another. You, you have to, I mean, we all are weak and we fail in some respects from time to time, sometimes greatly. Archbishop, let's now take a look at our gospel reading on this fifth Sunday of Lent, the 21st day of March. And today's reading is from John's Gospel, the 12th chapter. After the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you and ask for your thoughts and your spiritual advice. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Sir, 
We wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die. Archbishop, on this fifth Sunday of Lent, what is the message of this gospel for us? Well, let me preface my response by reminding people that some parishes may be using the cycle A readings, which would not be this one, because uh, those readings are geared particularly to parishes where people are being prepared to be received into the church and baptized at Easter. Now, with COVID, that's not happening in too many places, at least not in the full way. So, But just keep in mind that if, if you've heard a different gospel at Mass on Sunday during these few Sundays of Lent, it's for that reason. Again, this is very powerful stuff. Whoever lo loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world would preserve it for eternal life. And that's why, of course, we have to understand Scripture in the whole context. Uh, we, you know, if somebody went around uh, with a banner saying, Jesus says to hate yourself, that would not be an accurate uh, representation or interpretation of what he means. So he's not talking what, about self-hatred. No, but Jesus is talking about the fact that we have to renounce uh, the things of this world for the sake of the, thi the, the things of heaven, that this world offers many allurements, many pleasures, many, how should we say, material things that tempt us. But the reality is that well, they never will satisfy the hunger of the human heart. No matter how, if you were the richest person in the world, it would not make you ultimately happy. If you had the greatest indulgence in sex sexual activity, as today seems to be plastered all over as being, you know, an enticement for people. You know, God created sex between a, a man and a woman in marriage, uh, and it's not at all evil when it's lit, when it is, uh, in fact, it's something good as God created and it meant it to be lived. That kind of thing is not going to ultimately uh, fulfill uh, the whole purpose of your life. So that's why Jesus says, uh, whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. And of course, the most important thing of all is that hating your life in, the, in this sense, that if you're called to sacrifice it for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God, or, uh, or out of love for neighbor, you should be willing to do it. Because that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. In a certain sense, he hated his physical life in, in the sense that he was willing to give it up 
out of obedience for the sake of our salvation. So it's a powerful, powerful word, but it has to be understood properly. And it's really about following Jesus in everything. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Of course, referring to being lifted up on the cross, that this is the decisive moment of human history. Not any achievement of ours, nothing of ours uh, compares to this moment of Christ being lifted up on the cross for the salvation of the world. Can you give us some clarification on, like the Greeks, we too would like to see Jesus. Therefore, is his response to us the same as it was to Philip and Andrew? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Can you explain Jesus' response to the request of the Greeks to see him? Well, there is a certain uh, uh, mystery about it, but I I think the the clear sense is this, that why did people want to see Jesus? They wanted to see him perhaps because of his miracles, perhaps if they were, you know, of the Jewish faith, that they would want uh, to see if he was the, the liberator, the Messiah, who was going to free them. But what Jesus is saying is you really don't understand me if you think that I'm just a wonder worker, a miracle worker, or uh, an earthly Messiah. Because it's only when I'm lifted up on the cross that you will see who I really am and what I've come to do. And, and of course, the cross is inseparable from the resurrection. And that, 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 that Christ accomplished this great work of salvation on the cross, for which reason the Father raised him up on the third day as Lord of us all. Let's take a look now at some of the questions submitted by our listeners. For instance, George from Oxford says, The Vatican said Monday that the Catholic Church would not bless same-sex unions in a statement approved by Pope Francis. Secular media reported that this pronouncement threatens to widen the chasm between the Church and much of the LGBTQ community. But isn't it true that nothing has changed, except perhaps the expectations of those who do not understand Catholicism and the teaching of Christianity? Well, George, I would say, just change one word in what you said. It's not that who do not understand, but I would say who reject those teachings. Uh, Yes, you're absolutely right. I think this is a very difficult, sad time uh, for the church right now, because quite honestly, the need for this kind of statement, which, as you said, George, is the, just a simple reaffirmation of what the Church has taught from time immemorial. It's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's been repeated over and over and over again. It was widely cited whenever a government has decided to uh, allow such things. But what is sad is that right now, in a place like Germany, there are even bishops who are advocating things that are really contrary to the faith. I don't know what's going to happen in Germany there. Not all of the German church, but there are segments of it that are advocating things that are contrary to the teachings of the church and to uh, even uh, and to canon law and such. So the Holy See felt the need and Pope Francis has felt the need to reaffirm something that, that has been said over and over and over again. I must say that it, it is sad, but it's the world in which we live today. And the pressures are go- on us are going to be enormous to accept this, and it's something we cannot accept. I think there's, we're going to face a lot of downright persecution because of this. I think we're going to be pushed out of a lot of things, and pushed into the sidelines. But what's important is our faith, you know, and uh, the church has suffered uh, in every, uh, throughout the 2000 years in so many, many countries. And we thought it could never happen to us in the modern world, but it is happening and it's going to happen and we have to be prepared for it. 
Were you as surprised as I was that this received as much media attention as it did, something that has been a teaching of the Church since the very beginning? Yes, well, I think partly it's because Pope Francis has been quoted uh, from time to time saying things that sometimes are taken out of context that led people to who wanted to use that to to kind of uh, as a wedge to change things, uh, reported it as suggesting a difference in church teaching. But anybody that's actually looked at the things that the Pope has said in context or who've looked at other things he said, he, he has been very, very uh, firm about, uh, about the, the church teaching. You know, again, we always have to emphasize, as Pope Francis has, that our pastoral care and our love for people who have a homosexual inclination is such that we want to do everything we can to encourage them. And if they're not ob 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 uh, observing, living by that church teaching, to try to help them to do that and not simply just uh, condemn them and, and banish them and alienate them. No, that's true. Even what our U.S. Bishops Conference said in 2006 about the pastoral care of persons with a homosexual inclination tries to explain how we have to do everything we can not to ostracize such people, but to have them be part of the church community and help them to live a chaste life. But today, it's not just about accepting individual people. It's about a whole ideology that's out there that is insisting that we that we accept things that we cannot accept. But again, with Pope Francis, you know, people have said, well, he's not so, doesn't make such an issue of abortion. My goodness, I, just recently the Pope gave a talk to the diplomatic corps there in Rome at the Vatican and, and, and lamented that so many co countries are devoting resources to abortion. I mean, he actually used, you know, sometimes he's pretty colloquial in his speech. He actually compared uh, the person who would take the life of an unborn child as a hitman. Now that's pretty that's pretty strong, you know, and of course it's it's not unwarranted either. So my point being here that there's a lot of confusion sometimes created, and some of it's created on purpose to try to to, to put a wedge into you know, among Catholics about church teaching. But this is as clear as can be. And there's, I often think of Cardinal George, the late Cardinal George, who said that to pass a law uh, saying that two people of the same sex can be married you may as well try to pass a law against the law of gravity, uh, denying the law of gravity. And that's not meant to be hurtful or hateful toward anyone, but it's it's clear that how the human person has been created by God in two complementary sexes of male and female, and that's what marriage is about. Dawn from Cromwell asks the question, Until now, the 45 altars and 11 chapels in St. Peter's Basilica have been used every morning by priests to celebrate their daily Mass. Many of them are Vatican officials who begin their day with the celebration. But a new letter from the Vatican Secretariat of State has banned the daily private celebration of Masses at side altars in St. Peter's Basilica. The question is, how does this affect non-resident priests visiting from other lands or bishops traveling with members of their diocese? Are they now restricted from being able to celebrate a Mass for a group of pilgrims traveling with them? Can you explain this new policy, Archbishop Blair? Well, quite honestly, I can't explain the reason for it. I I speak of firsthand knowledge of this because having lived and worked in Rome at the Holy See for a number of years, I said Mass for almost every day, every weekday for five years at St. Peter's Basilica at one of those altars. I didn't say Mass myself. I said it with other priests, American priests with whom I lived, who were all, we were all working in Rome at the, in the Roman Curia. I know exactly what it's like. I even had, we even had our own uh, cupboard in the sacristy for our stuff because we were there every day. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So no, I don't understand the reason for this, and I don't agree with it. Uh, and I'm very surprised that it comes from the Secretary of State, because normally there is a cardinal responsible for the, what they call the Fabrica of St. Peter's. Uh, St. Peter's is so big that it has its own kind of office, but it didn't come from there. It came from elsewhere. You know, I've only seen the letter, so maybe there's more to it that I'm not understanding. But on the face of it, I would, let's just say this, I would have a lot of questions about why this is happening, and I, I can't say that I, I w would agree with it. On the other hand, it's not my decision to make. I make decisions here about the cathedral or about things that other people might not like. The, the other thing I would say in, about your specific question, uh, like a bishop traveling with members of their diocese, is my reading of it that is a priest or bishop that comes with a group, uh, they still can uh, use one of, the, one of the altars in the crypt, one of the chapels in the crypt, for that occasion. Because there's two levels. There's on the main floor of the basilica, the altars at the side. And then if you go down the steps of where the tomb of St. Peter is found, there are also uh, chapels around there that have, have altars in the crypt. So your read um, then, Archbishop, would be that this applies basically to resident priests. I don't, I, I guess. I don't know if the priests that work, the Americans who work at the Vatican, if some of them have still kept up that custom that I had of, of having mass uh, in the morning. I mean, we, we did it particularly, we had a chapel at the Villa Stritch where we lived, yeah. but uh, what was nice is we would carpool, some of us, three or four of us, and then we could have mass early. We'd get there about, I don't know, 20 after seven in the morning, have mass. Then we'd go to a coffee bar and have our breakfast and then go to work. And by doing that, we missed a lot of the rush hour of Roman traffic by getting an early start. That was the main reason for doing it. I mean, not that we weren't very happy to be able to celebrate in the Basilica itself, but it worked out very nicely uh, because of that. And we would usually have mass that uh, you go out, you know, and, and you, ha you go to whatever altar is free. Uh, very often it was the tomb of Pope Gregory the Great or St. Leo the Great or the uh, Mater Ecclesia altar, the, the mother of the church. Those were altars there that were, were often free. But anyway, it, we'll see where all this goes. But I, I, I am sad at the thought that that won't be quite the possibility that it was in the past. And if there were pilgrims visiting the Basilica, those pilgrims could join in the, the Mass as they walked by, could they not? Well, I remember when what I'm talking about, there were very few people in the basilica. Yeah, that but we would have mass at 7.20 in the morning, and that's when most of the priests do this. They don't do it later. Because as the basilica gets more crowded, when tourists start to come in, you wouldn't want to have mass upstairs in the main, because right. it's too noisy. Even though people are told to kind of keep quiet, still it's, you know, when you get these huge groups of tourist groups. When we would say mass, the only noise was, you know, the basilica is so big that they use a Zamboni to wash the floor. And this, you know, one of those Zamboni machines like exactly. they use on hockey rinks? Ice, yeah. The Zamboni would come driving by the altar while we were saving mass with this little hush sound in the background, you know. Uh, and occasionally we might get, there, there people could come to the Basilica that early, and there might be two or three people that would, uh, would stand there at the communion rail outside the little chapel uh, altar, and we would, they, we would uh, engage them, you know, that they, they were participating with us in the mass. But that's, that's basically uh, uh, how it worked. Another question from Charlie from Waterbury. Charlie says, The president of the Pontifical Council for Christian Unity, Cardinal Kurt Koch, has supported a suggestion that Catholics and Orthodox work to agree on a common date to celebrate Easter. What are your thoughts on this? All the way back uh, after the Second Vatican Council, in fact, I think the council may have even said something about this, but I, I'm not at all sure 
It's been so long, many years, so many years. Mm-hmm. But Pope St. Paul VI back then hoped and, and, and tried to work with the Orthodox to get a common date uh, because they just are different traditions about the, the proper date to observe uh, Easter. I won't even say proper, but the a way of observing Easter. Uh, and not, not much came of it. They tried, but it didn't work. So to, if we're able to do that, uh, I would no objection to that whatsoever. I think, you know, the Orthodox of all people, they have priesthood that is like ours, that is valid. Uh, you know, uh, an Orthodox priest is really a priest. It's not, mm. you know, and the Eucharist that they celebrate is really the Holy Eucharist. It's just that they're not in communion with the Holy See, with Rome. And so they, they've gone their own way in many respects. But if we could have a common date for Easter, that would be a very good thing. Would you also like to see a fixed date of Easter? No, I don't think I would. And I don't think there's much basis for that, really, uh, in the tradition. Uh, no, I think I think it, it has to do with calculations that are very ancient and that have to do with Judaism. There, too, I would have to see how that how that plays out. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together so quickly. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord God, at a time when we face many spiritual, moral, and uh, physical challenges, we pray that your grace will always accompany us as we know it does, but we pray especially that we may have hearts and minds open to receive the grace you give and the wisdom to accept the truth that you teach, that we may not go astray ever from what is right and good. And we pray, especially as we prepare for Easter, that through penance and through prayer, through charity, we may come ever closer to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Archbishop, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next Sunday. And in the meantime, enjoy this week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.